Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guests are, were the lead investigators targeting Escobar and his organizations. They are the authors of Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Please welcome Steve Murphy and Javier Peña. Hey, Greg. Thank you for having us on the show. Me too. Thank you. Good. It's great to have you both. This is my uh, first podcast with two guests at the same time, so bear with me for any stumbling, but um, we'll, well, we'll just jump one of your guests is named Murphy and you've heard of Murphy's law. So just be prepared for anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, Steve, I'll start off with you. You know, this podcast uh, is around leadership. And my favorite question to ask is tell me a, a misconception in leadership. Um, well, and, and keep in mind that Javier and I were both law enforcement for 38 years. So it, it's much different in a government position, being a public servant versus private industry. As we're learning, uh, seems like you guys can make decisions a whole lot quicker than you can in the government. Um, but one thing I, I saw uh, working with the government as people got promoted, a lot of people just seemed to think that they all, all of a sudden became more important than everybody else because they have a new title. And nothing is further from the truth. I mean, in my opinion, and this is all you know Murph's opinion here, um, you have a position as a leader in which you want to gain the trust and respect and the loyalty of those that are working in your shop, right? And so if you come with an attitude and, and how does that work, um, just because you got promoted and you have a new title, it certainly doesn't make you more important. Now, it does mm -hmm. give you different job responsibilities. Um, and as we've all seen, some people are really, really good workers, but they're not good leaders. And a lot of it has to do with that self-importance uh, factor. So that, that's I made a whole list of things uh, preparing for today's talk, and, and uh, that just kept jumping as number one. You're not more important. You might be the boss. Uh, you have different responsibilities, but you're in a position where you can help your people succeed, which is ultimately going to lead to your success. That's that's very well said. JP, any thoughts on on what Steve just said there? Yeah, of course. And I agree with Steve 100%. And, you know, and, and uh, like I said, we were government workers. And I just want to point out that Steve and I reached the highest positions in the federal government, you know, senior executive service, where, uh, you know, we were running a lot of people. I ran three different divisions, uh, San Francisco, uh, Puerto Rico, Houston, uh, Columbia. At one time, I was the number two guy. So I've had a lot of experience. And one of the misconceptions, you know, and, and I think Steve had it right, but also is that we assume when there's a new boss is that he knows everything. And you know what? <laughs> that is not correct. You know, and going back, and this is, you know what, one of the lessons I learned in trying to be a good boss is that early on in your careers, right, you had bosses. I had some great bosses and I had some bad bosses that I hated. And I'll be honest. I mean, it, and one of the things I always remembered as a first line worker and you can, uh, you know, as a first line worker, any 
corporate type role, government, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? First line, you're starting off is that, you know, I always like the good bosses were like, man, I want to make them look good. So I'm going to work harder because this boss is and I, and I learned uh, from the good bosses and we had some terrible bosses. I mean, there was points in our time, and you know, I'm sure you too, where you just wanted to, you know, I need to quit this job. You know, I'm sure we've all uh, felt that way. I mean, we don't do it, but you learn the good <laughs> traits and then you try to imitate, emulate that later on in your career when you're a good boss. So uh, it, it's a learning experience, but uh, you always start off learning the great techniques that a great boss had. And, and I go back to, and, and like I said, you, you're working harder. And, and one of the things I'll always uh, remember is that, you know, that, uh, oh, that, that leadership quality where you want to, when you're on top, you know, always you need to, you know, also look at the people that are that are working for you. You need to, uh, <laughs> how could I say, appreciate them, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different, you know, how do you appreciate them? But it could be as the smallest as a as a pat in the back, you know. Have you ever seen like a, a CEO of a major corporation go down from his office, go to one of the workers, and just talk to them about something that he did. I mean, that goes a long way. I mean, we can go on and on about leadership qualities, but it's uh, it's a learning experience. And uh, you learn while you're going up in the in the food chain how to be a better boss. And I think that is one of the lessons, uh, you know, in leadership. JP, I'd love to dive into that a little bit further. I mean, talk to us about a little bit more about your journey and how you went from the first line and then learning leadership and then applying that leadership when you reached, you know, that management level. Talk to us about sort of how um, your journey, your understanding, your learning changed over that time period. Yes, yes. And, and you know what? There was a point in my career where I did not want to be a boss. I did not want to be a leader. I was happy doing my uh my uh not i don't want to call it grunt work but that work you know the 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 dirty work the 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 surveillances you know and uh i started off my career in austin texas you know and then i volunteered i did four years there then volunteered for columbia and i was always a working agent and after i left columbia after Pablo Escobar gets killed i, I get uh uh, promoted to our basic level of supervision, which is the first line supervisor in Puerto Rico. And, you know, and that's where I learned a lot. I had a task force of different agencies. So I had like 15 people under me. And, and it's like in a police department, you're the sergeant, you're running that group. In a corporate office, you're, uh, I don't know, just a team leader, I don't know, whatever, you know, term is out there. Uh, but so, you know, you, you, I learned a lot. And uh, after that group supervisor, I went up to a headquarters position where you're nobody, <laughs> you know, our, our headquarter level is you're there, Steve was there, you're doing a lot of different things, but you're one in a, in a thousand, you know, because there's a lot of big bosses. So, and then afterwards I get promoted and I go back to the number two guy in Colombia, and that's where I was leading groups. And, and it's in, and in our job, again, that, uh, 
there's going to be some stressful times. There's a lot of decision making you have to do. There's a lot of calls that come in two, three in the morning where there's a problem situation. You have to deal with problems. You have to deal with people, personalities. And, and we all know personalities at our job is a main thing out there. Everybody's got a different personality. It's like one boss always said, you're dealing with a thousand, you know, different uh, worlds out there. Every person has their own world. And you have to adjust, but it's it's making decisions under stressful situations. You have to learn. You have to uh, learn how to make that decision where it's. And you know what? I learned one lesson in leadership when it was an old retired Vietnam colonel. And I always remember what he says, guys. So you got to make that decision. Some people are going to like it. Some are don't, but they're looking up to you to guide that ship. You need to uh, be there. And, you know, no names will be mentioned, but Steve and I know some big people out there that never could make a decision. And it's like the the paperwork would be, you know, in the desk would be files of paperwork and no decisions were ever made. But anyway, uh, make that decision, take into consideration everything, you know. Uh, and, and like I said, in our job, it's safety is the first decision making that's that's our job you know we have a saying we all go home at nighttime you know we all go home to our families that's very important you know some of our people never you know uh never made it home which is you know we we all know uh that situation but uh learning and, and again i go by the people by the just that that little pat on the back that and, and you know what when i was a boss one of the things i love to do and i was the the, you know, uh, the big boss, I had 500, 600 people. You know what I would love to do is bring up the agents that are working a case and let them explain it to you. And their supervisor would always try to butt in. I said, no, no, I want to hear from the guy who's working the case. And if you look at their face, look at their eyes. I mean, they just open up. They are so proud to talk to you about their, you know, about their case. And another leadership quality I learned is, you know, when we'd have something big, you go down, go down to them, congratulate them, you know, out there when they're working, that goes a long way. So that little pat on the back, that appreciation, sometimes we don't do it. And like I said, that goes, you know, a long, long ways. That's that's very well said. Steve, jumping back to what you brought up at the start of our podcast around titles and leadership, um, can you give me some examples of your past that you can talk about, uh, about leaders who've come into positions or they thought they were leaders because of their title and then sort of how they were interpreted by their, their staff or like, just give us a little bit more meat behind that statement. Yeah. It's, um, um, well, as you can imagine in law enforcement, there's a lot of type A personalities, um, I've been told I am. I don't think I am, but they say that's an indicator that you are. So I'm not sure if that's true or not. But um, you see these people come in and they're quick to jump on people. They don't want to listen to anybody. You got to be a good listener to be a good leader. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you have your team and you're working towards a common goal, especially in private business. So if if they don't know what that is, if they don't know what that ultimate goal is, what you're trying to accomplish, how can they help you accomplish the mission, Right. So uh, you see these young guys come in and all of a sudden they're the boss and, and, uh, and they like to let you know they're the boss. And there's an old, old saying, and I'm a country boy from the South. And the saying is, if you have to toot your own horn, it's not worth tooting. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> you know, so if you're in there having to tell everybody you're the boss, they know that, you know, you don't need to tell them that they know who the boss, everybody knows who the boss is. So, um, I'll give you an example. When we were in Medellin, Javier and I were living there and uh, with Columbia National Police and Chase and Pablo and all that stuff. And um, sure. our ambassador brought in the, our U.S. Army's Delta Force and the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6. And they worked with us hand in hand for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I just, Javier and I, we always tell everybody, if we're ever kidnapped, that's who we want to come and save us because we've seen what their capabilities are. They're fantastic. I mean, I refer to them as the studs of the world. I just have the utmost respect for those guys. But they would rotate in, you know, and I think there were 60 day rotations. And uh, so a new, their new boss rotated in on site and he came and got me one day in the barracks and he's like, okay, I'm Joe Smith. I can't remember what his name was, but he says, I'm, I'm Joe Smith, captain promotable. And I thought, is that your name? Your last name's promotable. And he thought I was being smart aleck and I wasn't, I just didn't know the term military terminology and he was still a Lieutenant, but he wanted you to know he was, going to be promoted to captain. Um, and that just really rubbed me wrong. And and then um, he started telling me what my job was. And, you know, I'm thinking you got like two days here in country and, you know, we live here and Javier knew what our job was. And, and he's telling me how I'm going to do things. And finally, you know, just kind of had to set the guy straight and say, look, I'm going to do my job the way that I've always done it. My partner, the way DEA does it. You're in charge of my safety. If we have, if we're being overrun here in the base and we have to bug out and you have your, your escape routes and you pre-plan meeting points, stuff like that. I said, I'll beat you there because I'm going to be scared. I can run really fast when I'm scared. (laughs) But other than that, I'll let you know what's going on, but uh, don't expect me to come and ask permission. So that was just, that was kind of a, and I hate to put the guys down because we do have the utmost respect for these operators. They are the best in the world, but um you know, one one thing that always came to mind with a leader for me is praise in public, chastise in private. You know, so like Javier was saying, just by you getting up in your from your little office, we have nice corner offices with windows and all that kind of stuff, and going out in the pods where your workers are. And these are the people that are going to make you or break you. These are the people you're expecting to do their job and be loyal and respectful to you. And, and I mean, just going out and saying good morning once or twice a day or the afternoon or Hey, how's your family? Hey, your kid was playing ball. What was the outcome of the game? Uh, simple things like walking through the, the the areas and picking up a piece of trash in the floor. It's amazing how your workers will pick up on that. And then they turn around and do the same thing. And, and one last example, I know I'm getting off topic just a tad, but I think these are important. I had been in a meeting one day and I came back to my office, which was offsite. And I had a thousand things on my mind. And I usually came with a smile and spoke to everybody. If I, you know, doesn't matter who you are. I'll, if you're the, if you're my boss or you're the person that are cleaning our office, I'll speak to you. And, uh, and I just, I wasn't thinking and I walked in and I didn't look at anybody. I went straight to my office and it wasn't 10 minutes before one of my, uh, group supervisors comes in and Hey boss, everything. Okay. I'm like, yeah, that's good, man. I'm, you know, got a lot of things to do here. And he said, uh, are you okay? you know, is there something wrong? And I'm like, no, it's good. That's good. Why are you asking me these questions? You know? And well, everybody noticed when you walked in, you didn't have a smile on your face. You didn't speak to anybody. Just want to make sure you're okay. And that, I tell you what, that made me feel so good. You know, that your people care about you like that. Um, and so, you know, from that point on, I always put that smile. Even if you're having a bad day, even if you just got your butt chewed out, you come walking in with a smile. Don't let that drift down to your workers. It's that's so important. And, and right. 
a great tidbit of information. Right. Uh, JP, you know, Steve. And, and if I can add uh, yeah, something please. around that, and, and this was, uh, and uh, like I said, no names are going to be mentioned. <laughs> Steve will know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> during our time in Medellin, right, we, Steve and I, were living there with the Colombia National Police at the famous search blog, Bloque de Búsqueda, day and night, day and night, searching for Pablo Escobar, doing all sorts of operations. And, and we're frontline workers. We're no bosses. We're, anyway, uh, we were there uh, 18 months living with them. Um, sometimes we couldn't even go home. Uh, we had to stay there, but uh, supervision, uh, leadership, uh, one of our frontline supervisors never, never came by to see us in Medellin. Can you believe that? Mm. Our supervisor. And here we are doing all sorts of, our friends are getting killed, uh, searching, and, and this is what not to do. You know, this is a lesson. And our first line supervisor, this is another leadership, never came by. Hey, how y'all doing? What can we do to make it better? Anyway, no names will be mentioned, but again, this is a a negative in in a leader. I just Absolutely. had to get that off. Yeah. You know, JP, I was just following up on that. Steve had mentioned, and you'd mentioned it as well, about listening and being a good listener as a leader. Can you talk to us a little bit more about using active listening as a tool in leadership? Yes. Oh, that is one of the basic tools. Listening to the people that are working for you. Why? Because they know what's going on. They know. And th and you could uh, take this into any corporate level in the banking system. You got uh, analysts out there that are that are working that know what's going on. They're the ones who, like I said, Tell the tell the bosses, and if you do not listen, you're going to be missing out. You do not know what's going on, and just a little. I like to do some examples, and not that you know, trying to toot my own horn, like Steve said. But there was an analyst in Medellin, and his boss did not listen to him. It was a colonel, and uh, this analyst had great information on a serious narco trafficker, a Sicario, an assassin in the United States. And the Colonel said, uh, Javier, he don't know what he's talking about. And this guy had, was a young analyst, you know, had, they had just hired him. Did not, and, you know, and, and the, the Colonel says, Javier, let's get out of here. Let's don't listen to this. You know, he's brand new. He don't know what to talk about. And the information he had, like I said, it was, Sir, I think one of Pablo Escobar's main Sicarios is in the United States, Sicario. And we knew who he was. And he was a deadly Sicario, uh, had been responsible for placing a bomb on a commercial airline in Colombia, killing 170 people. So anyway, we leave and I go back at nighttime. You know, everybody's gone, you know, and I just, and the analyst is still up. I said, hey. Uh, kid, uh, you know, young guy, you know, and first of all, you know, Steve and I always, we love animals. They do a great job. And, you know, uh, there's sometimes the unsung hero. So I listened to him and he gave me information. That information later on led to the arrest of one of Pablo Escobar's main wow. Sicarios in the United States, just by listening 
you know, to them, because like I said, we, you know, bosses sometimes make that mistake. Listen, you know, of not listening, you know, in our principle is you need to listen because they're the ones who are working it. They're the ones who know. And if, like I said, there's just, they have that wealth of information. That's fantastic. Steve, I'm curious, um, as we're talking about active listening and the benefits any techniques that you've used or you or how you've practiced active listening um, that you could share with our audience? Absolutely. There is. Um, so, um, and I don't mean for any of this to sound like we're coming across bragging, you know, it, but I just want to tell a story. <laughs> um, it seemed like my forte in DEA was being able to work in multi-agency environments. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of type A's, a lot of competition in law enforcement. There's a lot of territorialism. There's a lot of self-preservation. It's my case. I can't tell you about it because then you'll know as much as I do. So, and then, and there's a lot of animosity between state and local agencies and federal agencies. And Javier and I were both local police officers and then became federal agencies. So we were very familiar with that. And we were able to always have that in the back of your mind so that you could not combat it, but maybe alleviate that competition. And so uh, I implemented a program as a group supervisor, which is a first-line supervisor in DEA. My policy was no secrets. Now, I'm not talking about classified material. I'm talking about what are the objectives of our investigations? Because if you want the people working with you to do the job, you got to tell them what the job is, don't you? I mean, you got to tell them what is the ultimate objective here. And so once I got out of headquarters and now I'm at the second level supervisor, what we call an assistant agent, special agent charge. I went to Atlanta and created this strike force part of the department of justice and had all the agencies in there, had FBI, ATF, IRS, a lot of state locals, customs, a couple DEA groups. And there's no more competition than, than (laughs) in my first lines, in my, in my executive staff, major competition, big egos, big personalities, and every Tuesday, and, and I'm, I'm not an advocate of having a meeting to plan a meeting. I mean, meetings get carried away in the government. It's, a, it's ridiculous. Um, and that's a whole nother topic. But uh, <laughs> every Tuesday morning, we would come in for a one-hour meeting. It was me with my executive staff. And each of, the, each of those supervisors had to tell everybody else at the table what their group was working on, what area of town, what the cartel relation is, what's the objective of their investigation. And what it does is it, cop- it, it cuts down on duplication of effort which no business wants that. You're wasting resources if you do that. Um, and in our world, it cut down on potential blue-on-blue situations where you might have cops investigating cops and end up in a shootout you know, with friendly fire. Uh, we've all experienced that kind of stuff. But also what it does now is once everybody knew what everybody else was doing, I would insist on them giving their people an opportunity to do their job. You know, I'm telling you what I want here in the strike force. I'm telling you what I want in, in whatever office we're in. Now, go tell me how I can help you do your job, but go do your job. I will not micromanage you. I will let you, I'll give you an opportunity to do your job. If you don't do it now, we're going to come back in and have a discussion. But give people an opportunity to do their job. 80% of the people that are out there, if you've earned their trust and respect and their loyalty, especially their loyalty, They'll bend over backwards, just like Javier said. You always wanted to make the boss happy, right? Mm. Now, that other 20%, 10%, this is Murph's opinion here, 10% you can motivate. 
You know, you can just by showing respect to them and giving them an opportunity, they'll step up. Now you got 90% of your workforce working towards that common goal. And that last 10%, uh, my experience has been, you might get a little <laughs> motivation out of them. Uh, those people, you could ask them to come to the office one day a week, come in at 10, take lunch at 12, come back at one and go home at two, and they still can't get it done. So, uh, and maybe that's, you know, it's a testament to my leadership skills that they weren't as good as I would like them to have been, you know, that you couldn't motivate a hundred percent of the people, but, uh, we are finding out in private industry after our government service that it's a whole lot easier to motivate those people or get rid of those people if they don't do their job in the government, you can't get rid of anybody, <laughs> but and I, I know that's a lot of explanation, but um, I, that was my motto, no secrets. And in fact, mm -hmm. you can see this bronze eagle back here. And that was from the office in Atlanta when I left the strike force and went to Washington, D.C. the first time. And the inscription on it, in quotes, is no secrets. That was my policy. You know, put it out there on the table and let's all get the job done. Fantastic. JP, I, I'm curious, um, just feeding off of that, now that the both of you have seen a lot of corporate America with what you do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Any other um, connections or realizations, like things that have, that have come into your awareness comparing corporate life to uh, government life? Yeah. There, and, and you know what, we're all striving for that successful goal where it rather be business Corporate, law enforcement, it, and that successful goal is going to mean something different to anybody. Banking system could be, hey, boss, I brought in this, you know, multi-million dollar account into the bank, right? Uh, uh, DEA, law enforcement agency are successful. Are you know, we arrested one of the biggest traffickers operating in the world. So everybody's got their goals uh, to meet. In in you know what we. That's that's why I've always felt that as as leaders, you align yourself with good, with great people, because in the end, and I think Steve and I have been both saying that they're going to make you look good. And you're, that's what, you know, our, our end goal is in corporate uh, government is those those good people. And you know what? We, we're going to have bad people out there, too. People that just want to make a paycheck, that come in, put their feet on the desk. Good example is when Steve and I arrived in Colombia, you know, it was uh, the attitude from some of our people down there was like, hey, don't work with the cops because they're all dirty. So what does that mean? Stay at the office, make a paycheck and go home. So we quickly, you know, we we changed it. And you know what we learned? We had a great boss in Colombia, a uh, guy by the name of Joe Top, who was uh, one of those type bosses that you wanted him to look good. but. He would, if you weren't working, he would tell you. And he's the one who I think changed our office uh, atmosphere by going out, talking to our uh, counterparts, doing stuff. So that 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 means a lot, you know, that uh, that person out there. But you, like I said, you have to try. But I get, I always remember, hey, don't go out. Those cops are all dirty. So what do you do? You just stay in the office like any other business. If, uh, you know, you just want to make a paycheck and go home at the end of the day. Shifting gears slightly um, and getting deeper into your story, gentlemen, 
um, you know, I've got this saying about, uh, you know, life tends to be a random walk until you look backwards and then it's a straight line because everything just sort of makes sense. At what point in time during your, your, your career and chasing Escobar and, and the things that you were accomplishing, did you realize it was going to turn into being a best-selling author, a Netflix series, et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> was there a point in time that you said, you know what, this is going to be a great story for us to tell at some point in time? Now, Steve, <laughs> I'll start with you. <laughs> oh, you're not going to believe this, but... Um... We were the complete opposite throughout our entire careers. Um, I will say once I came back from Columbia after Escobar was dead and all that, um, I didn't feel like I needed to prove myself to anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's when being a criminal investigator really got to be a lot of fun. You know, so the rest of my career, uh, there, there's ups and downs, you know, peaks and valleys like everybody has. Um, but Towards the end of our career, I had a friend in, in Washington, D.C. that introduced me to two Hollywood producers. And Javier was living, I think you were lost down in Houston at the time, right, yeah, JP? Right. And uh, and so I went and met the guys, and I'd tell them a little bit about the story, show them pictures. And, and both of them wanted to take our story and make political statements out of it. Mm-hmm. And we're about as apolitical as anybody you're ever going to meet. I mean, we make fun of both sides of the aisle, but just because they're such easy targets, right? And so... Um, in March, uh, or in February of 2013, I got a call from a retired Marine that Javier and I used to work with down in Columbia. Hadn't, you know, hadn't seen the guy in over 20 years and, uh, catching up a little bit. And I said, well, Gil, his name is Gil Macklin. I said, Gil, why are you calling now? Are you in town? You know, you want to go grab dinner or, or beer or whatever? And, and, uh, he said, no, no, I, I live here in DC. He said, but, uh, there's a Hollywood producer wants to talk to you and Javier about the Escobar story. And, I said, you know what, Gil, we've been down this road before. You get your hopes up, your hopes get dashed. It's very disappointing, and we just decided nobody really cares, so we're not interested. And I don't know how many Marines you know, but they can be a little colorful in their language <laughs> when they don't get what they want. <laughs> so after he tuned me up on the phone, um, you know, I said, okay, okay, I'll call the guy. You know, And the guy's name was Eric Newman, who was the originator, creator, and executive producer of the Narco series on Netflix. And so uh, – <clears throat> I told, uh, as I'm talking to uh, Eric at the end of the conversation, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know what? Thank you for the offer, but we're not interested. And I know he about fell out of his chair because we've since learned that people will sell their souls to be on TV, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so he says, listen, I'm coming to Washington next month. He said, would you have dinner with me and a couple of writers? We're up there on other business and, you know, let's just give you our spiel. And, and uh, if you say no, it's no. And I've been keeping Javier up speed on everything. And, and honestly, I thought, you know what? This is going to be a free dinner at a really nice restaurant. Yes, I will meet you. <laughs> That's a leadership decision right there. Free meal, right? right. Free's always good. So um, met him and and uh, I, I can be somewhat of a practical joker and, and I was and, and our personalities clicked. And so after that meeting, this was in March, um, I called, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, let me talk to Javier and we'll get back to you. And so Javier and I decided, okay, we'll pursue it. Now, in federal government, mandatory retirement age is 57 in law enforcement. We were both 56, turning 57 later that year. Because of our positions, the DEA administrator had offered us both a three-year extension, and I had two daughters in college. I needed a job. So uh, we had already accepted that three-year extension. Well, um, I called I called Eric back, and I said, look, we're interested. Let's, what's the next steps? And he says, uh, we need to get a contract together. That was March. By May, we had signed contracts with Netflix, 
And in June, the end of June, I pulled the pin and retired after 38 years in law enforcement, mm -hmm. which I never wanted to leave. But I, you know, am I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, but I recognize an opportunity when I see it. <laughs> and then Javier, I think you made it to the end of the year or early next year and pulled the pin. But by July, we were sitting in the Hollywood in the writers' room, starting to write the first season of Narcos. So it's it's the last thing we ever thought is we would be doing a TV series a worldwide speaking tour, writing a book, uh, all the things, running a podcast, talking to Greg here, coming to the entrepreneurs organizations where we met you in DC, you know, several, several months ago. Um, just the last thing. And even after they finished um, season one, we were in Hollywood talking to, and we were in Eric Newman's office, as a matter of fact, Santa Monica, and he has a viewing room. He says, Hey, you guys want to see, you know, the first episode? We said, sure. You know, cause he's got a popcorn machine. He's got the booze bar and all that stuff in there. And, and so we go in and sit in these big leather chairs and now they had not done the final editing. They hadn't added the music. They hadn't added the colorization, all the things that Hollywood does to make the films look so good. And we're sitting there and we've made it through about 20 minutes. And we both looked at each other and said, this sucks. Nobody's going to like this. Nobody's going to watch this. And we got up, went to set tail, told Eric, Hey, we'll see you later. We're heading back to the hotel. We thought it was going to be a flop. Shows you how much we know about Hollywood, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. JP, I'd love your insights too. Like when, when Steve called that next time for that meeting, um, what was your reaction? I mean, it sounds like you guys went through this a couple of times with some other producers but when this last time with the Netflix opportunity, what was your reaction when, when Steve called and said, Hey, I'm having this dinner with this producer. Yeah. And, and you know what, in our job, in our careers, a lot of it has been timing, right? It's, it's a lot of it is timing. Mm -hmm. I said, with Netflix, we're getting close to retiring. And uh, once we retired, you know, they, they approached us, we didn't approach them. And you know what, we're, Police. We're not Hollywood people, so we learned a lot, you know, very, very quick. And uh, one of the things is like, you know, when we went up there, man, we took our own. Per we had a lot of personal notes from Colombia, so we're telling them like, hey, like the old, uh, just the facts, ma'am. Give me the facts. You know, we're telling them all the facts. And then all of a sudden is when, because uh, they would send us the script, right? And I, I always remember the first script they sent. I'm like, what? That never happened. You know, and I'm calling Steve. And all, we're all pissed off. Like, come on. So we did not know. You know what? I learned right away what artistic license <laughs> means. So, you know what? And I tell people it's it's uh, the Netflix did a great job. The uh, what do we call it? The the timeline is correct. A lot of other stuff is is artistic licenses, but it's it's a great show. And like Steve and I had said, no one's going to watch it before we knew it. It had a worldwide appeal, and that's why you know what they bought a second season, which was good for us. But it was people all over the world were watching it, were uh, loving it. So it, it just, we were, you know, Hollywood wrong. And then going back, when you first asked Steve about, you know, back then, did we ever think of this as being a Hollywood story? Of course not. You know, and I always remember one of the colonels, I was having coffee one night with him at our search block. He says, have you ever one of those days someone's going to make a movie of all this? I said, Colonel, who would want to make a movie about Pablo Escobar? You're you know, basically, I told him I was laughing. You're crazy. No one's, no one cares. You know, and uh, so that was, you know, and then all of a sudden, and you know what? At the beginning, documentaries were done. 
but there was never that that type of interest. And you know what we uh, Steve and I developed a little, you know, our our presentation. But we would tell DEA people how we did it because also for us it was a model, a model how we followed how to take down an organization. So, I mean, you know, not bragging, but we developed a strategy uh, that was based also in the United States, in Colombia, in, you know, that model is being used now when we go after a lot of the cartels, basically you go after everybody, you just not go after one person. So I'm proud that we, you know, some of our uh, leadership model is still being used out there. It's a, it's amazing work for sure. Um so switching gears a little bit, gentlemen, what are you doing now? You, Steve, you mentioned speaking tours, the entrepreneurs organization. Give the audience a little insight of what the what two of you are doing these days. Well, this is uh, we're coming up on the end of our seventh year of of what our agent calls a worldwide speaking tour. Um, of course, COVID killed us like it did everybody else. We had a, a little bit over eighty percent reduction in business. But the four years prior to COVID, we averaged seventy five shows a year around the world. Um, this year, 2022, it's, it's come back somewhat, maybe 2025 events we've done so far this year, and we're already booking events for next year. So, um, that's a lot of fun because, you know, I mean, just quite honestly, to be blunt about it, we get to travel the world and somebody else pays for it, (laughs) which is a blast. Um, but we also have, uh, our book is out still out, uh, Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. Um, we're running a podcast, true crime weekly podcast now called game of crimes, which you can find anywhere that, um, that you listen to podcasts. It's on all the, the different podcast channels and it's every show we feature a guest. It's not us telling somebody's story. We bring them on and let them tell their story. And it's everything from, uh, law enforcement professionals who have been wounded in the line of duty to, uh, we had Ed Davis, who was the commissioner of the Boston police during the Boston Marathon bombing, to Dave Reichert, who was the lead investigator on the Green River serial murder case where a guy pled guilty to 49 murders. Uh, we even occasionally bring on a bad guy, a former bad guy, just to get his perspective and let people learn from it. Um, we're the lead investigators on another project called The Lost Clipper, and which involves the disappearance of murder of 15 Americans in 1938 in Micronesia on the other side of the world. And our theory, if it, if we can ever prove it to be true, and us being the investigators, we work with an, uh, several other guys on the team. The theory is that uh, it was directly connected to the disappearance of Amelia Earhart in 1937, mm. which is still a mystery. Um, what else? We, we're working on several documentaries now. I don't know how many documentaries you can do on Pablo Escobar, but we're doing more. Um, and currently we have... Uh, two or three offers to about potential new crime shows or, or, you know, some kind of show on television series in which we might be the host of the show. So, um, you know, it's funny because my wife says when you're going to, or if you ask my wife when I'm going to retire, she'll, she'll tell you when he dies. I'm mm-hmm. loving it. I'm having a blast. Um, get to meet people like you, Greg, and, and your yeah. whole group up there in DC. We had a, a fantastic time with you guys that time. And, uh, it's just amazing the opportunities that come along your way. Wonderful, JP. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean it's 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 been great, and and uh, we're, we're particularly proud of 
that presentation we do, which Greg, I think y'all heard it at the EO, right? And we've done what three or four other EOs. But you know, as you know, we tell the the truth about the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar from our eyes. We were there, we saw it. We have our own photos, videos. So it's it's a it's a fun fun in that you know presentation and that you know we'll make some jokes also but it's also a dark time because well all the people that Pablo Escobar killed so we encourage people please you know uh if you need to hear the real story hey please uh contact us <laughs> wonderful it's a go ahead Steve yeah just I just have one other thought um and this is something I've tried to teach my kids and anybody else sort of listen to my little pontifications here you know, whatever it is in life that we all choose to do, we make the decision to be a leader or to be a follower. We chose to be leaders. You've chosen to be a leader. Why would you want to be a follower? Why would you want to let somebody else tell you what to do all your life when you have an opportunity to lead the pack? So just think about it. Not everybody is a leader. Maybe I'm a poor leader. I, I very well could have been. and, and uh, But it, to me, it just seems like it. it makes so much more sense for you to step up, take the responsibility and be a leader, give it a shot. If it doesn't work for you, then you can go back to being a follower, man, be a leader. Yep. Treat people right. And they're going to look out for you. Uh, that's very well said. And Steve, I won't let my children hear that message until they're at least 16 or 17 or 18 right now. <laughs> they need to follow me in my direction. <laughs> uh, well, I, I have to say some of my kids listened and some of my kids didn't. <laughs> It's all part of their journey. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, it's been great having you on the show and it's awesome to reconnect. It's been a true honor for us, Greg. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope we're past cross again. Uh, you know, kind of hoping we might see you in uh, South Africa next year. You yeah. never know. Oh, that would be fantastic. And, and your bios and your LinkedIn profiles and all the ways to get in touch with you will be part of our show notes. So anyone who's listening, just scroll down and you can figure out ways to, uh, to learn more about the amazing story and the leadership journey that these gentlemen have been on. So thank you again for your time. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.